All right, so we uh, are going to continue in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, the call to be spiritual is the, is the title of the series in, in this book. Um, today we're in chapter 5. Chapter 5, it's 13 verses long, and I've entitled the sermon, Show Them the Door. Show Them the Door. I wonder if you have had the sad experience of having within your family the ongoing trauma of someone suffering from drug addiction. Being addicted to drugs invariably results in harming oneself and those that they love over and over again. A cycle of just damage and destruction. From all accounts, trying to help an addict is exhausting and sadly sometimes requires telling them they have to go. They can no longer live with you because of the damage being brought about by their addiction and their behavior on the family. Drug addicts often steal from people they love in order to fund their drug habit. They can abuse people they love physically to intimidate them into giving them money for drugs. And they can do far worse than that. So is it okay when someone, perhaps even your own child, now think about this, is it okay when someone refuses to turn from their addiction and endangers you and the rest of your family, is it okay to lovingly show them the door? It's a hard thing, I know. Well, our text today is not unlike dealing with a loved one who loves drugs more than their family or even themselves. Sometimes that is what it feels like when members of Christ's church give in to sinful practices and dig in. They can be selfish and unkind. They can be disruptive and destructive. They can often tear others down with, with false accusations and all kinds of evil speech to try and justify themselves and their sinful behavior. And the text we look to today, the Spirit of God gives really practical advice for us on this count. Here he tells us what to do when someone in the church loves their sin more than Christ and his people. So let's turn our attention to the Word of God, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I'll read um, uh, all of the chapter, these 13 verses. God in his eternal wisdom, speaks to us from these words. So pay careful attention. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, and as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved 
in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But, I, but now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, uh, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. tough passage, isn't it? Sober. The theme I hope to prove to you today from this text is this. A brother who loves to sin has to go. A brother who loves to sin has to go. And the text will go on to say the saints are duty-bound to show him the door. I know that sounds harsh, but we humbly submit ourselves to God's Word at this point. And, and this is what he wants us to know next. This is the beauty of just opening up books of the Bible and going chapter by chapter. This is what God wants us to know next. As we consider our responsibility to maintain the holiness of Christ's church, we'll see that Paul calls us, first of all, to wake up. Then he calls us to stand up and finally to listen up. So that's how we're going to walk through this text. Okay? Wake up, stand up. And listen up, as we look to this theme, a brother who loves to sin has to go. So first, we need to wake up when it comes to sin in the church. To their shame, the Corinthians had permitted sexual sin to exist in their local assembly unchecked. Not only that. The kind of sexual sin that was shocking even to the unbelievers in their region. Did you pick up on that in verse 1 there? Paul wrote, It is actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Appreciate the depravity of what Paul had gotten wind of there in Corinth. A man that professed to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. A man that attached himself to the church of the living God. The, the, the church that's supposed to be a pillar to the world. This man was in an ongoing adulterous affair. But not any affair. One with his very own stepmother. Now it's unknown any of the details surrounding this, this shocking event. We don't know if the father was alive. We don't know how long it had been going on. But whatever the particulars were, it was so shocking to the conscience that even those who mock God, those outside the church, saw such behavior as outside the bounds of decency. And yet that's what was going on in the church of Corinth. 
You can hear the shock in Paul's words right there at the beginning, can't you? It is actually reported. And I would just simply ask you this question, an honest question. Do you believe this is possible in a local church? Do you, do you believe it's possible that that could happen in this church? You, you might try to write this off as peculiar to Corinth, and, and you would have a point in, in so doing. Corinth was a big port city with lots of people and business and lots of wickedness. The culture was notorious for its sexual sin, in fact. But one of the lessons of this text, of this book even, is, is that we need to wake up to the reality of sin in the church. Sin is sinister, and it is powerful, and it doesn't leave Christians alone. Christians are capable of behavior that is shockingly sinful. This may be news to you. Perhaps you're not yet a Christian, and, and you have you know, some thoughts about Christians and the Christian church and how they live. Perhaps you're not yet a follower of Christ, and you thought such things weren't possible for those who claimed Christ. Maybe it's because you've been impressed by the integrity and morality of Christians that you know. And, and you just assumed that, that they had left sinning behind. Maybe you just assumed that when people give their lives to Jesus, something sort of magical happens and that desire to sin goes away. Or maybe somebody in the church has pridefully suggested it to you, that we inside the church don't sin anymore. It is true that Christians are supposed to live holy lives. It is true. God calls them to do so, but though they are made spiritually alive by His grace when they're converted, Christians continue to live in bodies that are cursed with sinful desires and in a world that is constantly trying to seduce them to give in to wicked practices. And sadly, Christians can give in to those things. They can, be, they can succumb to them. Christians are called by God to live differently than the world. They are empowered by His Spirit to fight sin and repent of it when they fail. But sometimes, sometimes they, they give in to sinful lust and then refuse to turn from those wicked choices. It happens inside Christ's church. When it does, the Bible instructs the church on the church's responsibility. When a professing Christian won't repent of sin when they are confronted, the church is to show them the door. Now, this text isn't all the instruction we have for dealing with Christians who fall into sin. This isn't all God's Word has to say about confronting sin. But this is what must be done when, in the end, Christians refuse to abandon their shameful behavior. They can have a hard time believing you all, me, everybody in the Christian church, can have a hard time believing that people in, in the church are capable of such sin, capable of such evil that they would have to be tossed from the membership. Maybe you're having a hard time believing it. I've been in two different churches as a Christian. In my last church, I, I, was, I was a member there for about 15 years, and I've been here at Union Lake for a little more than 10 and I've seen this reality firsthand in both places. Brothers and sisters who won't wake up and see the reality of sin in church members and the great danger that that sin poses to the person and even to the body at large. I've seen it in both churches. 
Christians can simply refuse to believe that their friends inside the church, people who have been faithful servants perhaps, and even been a blessing to them spiritually, Christians can simply be unwilling to believe it possible for their friends to be involved in ongoing sin. And we need to wake up, friends. We need to wake up to the reality that sin does indeed creep into the church. If you struggle with this, whoever you are, this text calls you to wake up. That's the first point. It's the first thing. It, Paul just sets it right in front of us from, from the very first verse. Christians can do great damage to their souls and the souls of others by committing terrible sexual sins. They can give into drunkenness and rage and violence and greed and theft. And they can tear people down with slanderous accusations and treacherous gossip and more. This letter has already dealt with pride and hypocrisy and divisiveness and sinful rivalries, and we're just getting started. There's more to come. Even within this passage, Paul refers to sin in different terms. Glance through the passage with me. Verse 5, he speaks of the flesh. Now, he's not just talking about the body people live in, but rather the flesh with its sinful motives and the sinful actions, referring to the origins of sin giving in to the lusts of one's flesh. That's the sort of um, uh, thing he's referring to there in verse 5. And then he moves into verse 6, and he talks about leaven. We would say yeast. And leaven is often used in the Bible, as it is here, to represent the spreading destructiveness of sin, like yeast running through a a, a lump of um, dough. Paul interprets this metaphor in in the second half of verse 8 by giving examples of that kind of leaven. Do you see it there? The leaven of malice and evil. So he's being very plain here about, about about the reality of sin in the church. Finally, Paul lists other examples of what might be found in the church. He doesn't limit it to sexual sin. He, he writes that they may encounter those, this is verse 11, they may encounter those who bear the name of brother, but who are guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or, or a reviler, a drunkard or a swindler. And he's just like, this list goes on and on. What's the point? The point is we need to wake up to the reality that sin, sometimes even gross immorality, does rear its wicked head in the church of Jesus Christ. And this was in no way limited to Corinth. I mean, a a scant view of the New Testament would tell you this. The Apostle Peter even, and Barnabas, and other Christian leaders fell prey to godless, divisive behavior. Look at Galatians chapter 2 and read about it. The Thessalonians were commanded to have nothing to do with those lazy people in their church who refused to work and serve others and only wanted to sponge off of them. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. The Ephesians were warned, listen now, The Ephesian church was warned that those in their midst who engaged in things like jealousy and drunkenness or or those that caused strife and divisions in the church, those that did such things and refused to repent would not see heaven. Pretty sober. And that's just three examples. I mean, we could spend a long time 
going through the books of the New Testament and giving more examples. Sadly, I have seen people I love dearly and have served together with commit unspeakable things. I've seen so-called Christians defraud others in the church for financial gain, engage in shocking sexual immorality that I, that I can't even speak of here in this pulpit. I, I have seen so-called Christians settle into a homosexual lifestyle, engage in reckless slander, level false accusations, manipulate weaker Christians to prop up their own reputation, try to defi- divide the church of Jesus, and more. So we have the reality of sin in this book, in our text more is coming. It's throughout the New Testament, and it's by my own experience. And I, I, would, I would guess that you could list some things as well. We have to wake up to this reality that people who claim to be part of Christ's church can fall into sin. It's the basic premise of this passage. That anyone who claims to be a brother and yet loves to sin has to go that presupposes that there'll be people that will do that. But not only do we have to wake up, we also have to stand up. We have to stand up and do what is right when saints refuse to turn from their sin. A brother who loves to sin has to go, and the saints, as I've said a little while ago, they are duty-bound to show them the door. For this to happen, we have to first wake up to the reality of sin in the church, and then we have to stand up and do what the Bible demands of us. And the Bible does, in fact, demand things of us when sin gets a foothold in the church. And this is the step we turn to now, standing up. In this passage, it's important to note that Paul's not really addressing the, the, the sin of adultery per se. It's just the occasion for what he is talking about. Rather, he's addressing the sinful apathy of the Corinthian church. The sinful apathy, the inaction of the Corinthian church. He's addressing their unspiritual refusal to do anything about unrepentant sexual sin in the church. Look at it in verse 2 there. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Instead of standing up and dealing with sin, oftentimes Christians shrink back and do nothing. And that's what was happening in Corinth. And Paul pulls no punches on this this topic. He says their failure to act against notorious sin is arrogance. It's a failure to protect the honor of Christ's name and the people he died to save because you know better. That's what he's saying. You know better. You know better than God who lays out what you're supposed to do to protect the holiness of its church and the holiness of Christ's name in the community. You know better. Because you're more concerned with people thinking you're looking down your nose at them. Or, or you're, you're too concerned about uh, maybe a friendship ending because you get too real and confront a sin and, and try to deal with it. You know better. The arrogance, Paul points out here. Whatever the case is, failing to stand up against sin in the church is an act of pride. It's putting yourself before others, even before the Savior. 
consider Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. These verses, in these two verses, we find one of my favorite benedictions. I've pronounced over you countless times. Now to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within him, to him be glory in the church, and it goes on. But I want you to just consider those words for a moment. God does abundantly more. Abundantly more, incredibly more, monumentally more by His great, purifying, transforming power of Christ in us. So much so that we can't even imagine it. We can't even think to pray for it because it's too great, the work that He does. Christ in us, transforming and purifying us so that He gets glory in the church. Massive glory in the church. He's the only one that's responsible for this transforming power. So for His people to not care about someone in the church destroying themselves and others by their sexual sin or their sinful speech or some other unrepentant evil is to say we don't care how the world sees the church and what they think about God not powerfully working in His people. When we fail to stand up against sin, we say we don't care if God gets glory in the church. And Paul's outraged. And we ought to be too. But maybe you're thinking there are other things we can do. We don't have to just show sinners the door here. I mean, aren't we the place of forgiveness and love? And you're right, up to a point. You're right, up to a point. Yes, of course, we pray for people who are in sin. I I pray for you all. I trust you pray for me on that very point. Yes, we confront people in their sin and urge them to desert, desert these wicked stances that we put ourselves in. Yes, we bring others with us when necessary to help other brothers and sisters see their sin and turn from it. But if they finally refuse to turn from their sin, if they finally refuse to turn from their sin, it is a tragedy. It is an occasion for mourning, like the mourning of death. It is as if the person has decided that harming the reputation of the Savior and endangering his brothers and sisters in in the church is of no account. And this should bring anguish to our souls. It is a grievous thing and one that requires severe action by the church. In such cases, we are to stand up against sin. We are duty-bound to follow the biblical command to remove them from our number, to excommunicate them from the church, to render the judgment that, in light of their commitment to continue doing what is wrong, we are no longer confident that they bear the name of Christ, and so they must go. Notice how many different times the command goes forth in this passage. He doesn't just say it once. He does say it in verse 2. I've already alluded to it. Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Removed from the fellowship of the church and those who profess to walk in newness of life with Christ and his people. But but look at verse 5 here. Deliver this man over to Satan. Expel them, that is, from the church and into the world of unbelievers where Satan works in, in all who are disobedient. 
outside the church, out there in the world, Satan is the, the God of that age, under the lordship of, of Christ, of course. But he's working in the hearts of the unrepentant. And, and verse 5 says, if somebody in the church won't turn from their sin, you deliver them. You, you expel them from the church and deliver them back into the world that they're acting like they're a part of. Verse 7, the, the, the language changes, but the meaning doesn't. Clean out the old leaven, verse 7 says. This, of course, harkens back to, to Egypt and, and when God in the Exodus was, was rescuing uh, Israel from Egypt and, and they had to, uh, uh, they, they uh, um, recognized the, the, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and, and the Passover and there was this, there was this uh, a ceremony where you would clean your house of all yeast, all, of all leaven, because it metaphorically represented sin. And so there was this cleansing. And so Paul here is saying, purify the church by removing anyone who's living as if they're still part of the old wicked lives that all of us lived before our conversion. And then finally, look at verse 13 there, as plain as it can be. Purge the evil from among you. This is actually an echo from Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 22 which told Israel how to treat those who continue to sin and break God's covenant and show themselves to not be a member of the covenant community. They were to be shown the door, driven out from the care and community of God's people. And that's what Paul says to do here. If someone inside the church will not turn from their sin, they are to be purged. They are to be removed. They are to be delivered to Satan. They are to be cleansed out like the old leaven that represents sin. Now later in the, the, the very end passage, I'm not going to talk much on verses 9 through 13, only to say that make sure that you don't make the misunderstanding that the Corinthians made. Evidently, Paul had said this to them previously, and they had somehow heard him to say, well, we've got to separate ourselves from the sin of those outside in the world. And Paul's like, no, dummy, I'm talking about people in the church. People that claim to be brother. People that claim to follow Jesus and act this way. Those are the people that you're to, to remove. In verses 3 through 5, look, look at those verses now. Paul shares his judgment of the man and what needs to be done, and he encourages the church to join him in that judgment. Wait a minute, I thought we weren't to be people that judge. Uh, read this passage very carefully. We're not to be people of hypocrisy, right, that judge other people for the very things that we do, right? But we are absolutely for each other's health and the glory of Jesus to be looking for, for, for blatant sin in each other's lives and confronting each other in it to help us live the pure lives that we were saved to live. And so Paul says, I've already rendered judgment. I'm not even there, but join me in the judgment. And when he does this, he encourages us to judge in the church, humbly and fairly, of course. But we must judge notorious, unrepentant sin in those who claim to be Christians. We must judge it as evil and take action against it. A brother who loves to sin has to go. You're not even 
to eat with them. Did you see that down? And I think that's in verse 12. In, in the ancient world, that was like to eat with somebody, to dine with somebody, meant more than it means to us today. It means to have a real deep relationship, a familial relationship, a, a relationship of love and intimacy. And Paul's like, uh, you don't have that kind of relationship with people that claim to be Christians, and they, they won't turn from their sin. You're not to associate with them. You're not to give any impression that you think they might be a Christian. You show them the door. That's the command. I know that's harsh, friends, but this is God's wisdom for the church. What's more, Paul reminds us, the Corinthians and us, of the authority of the church. Now zone in here. If you've drifted, like come on back for a minute here. Okay? Paul reminds us of the authority of the church. That is, when a local church comes together to make such judgments and to take such serious steps, they do so, verse 4 says, with the power of our Lord Jesus. Literally, we do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. We take action that is under his authority, not unlike how the apostle himself was an authoritative representation, representative of Christ. We too are those representatives under his authority. Now some will balk at this and accuse others of having ulterior motives. I've experienced this myself. But a gathered local church stands as Christ's representative, acting for the good of his name and the good of his people when they stand up against sin. When they stand up against sin, they, they, they don't do so on their own authority, but their actions are an exercise of His authority. They stand up against sin in His name. A brother who loves to sin has to go. In order for that to happen, we have to first wake up to the reality that, that people in the church sin in the first place. They can fall into the clutches of even shocking sin. And yet realizing that isn't quite enough. We, 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 we do need to wake up, but we need to also stand up. We need to stand up and address those in the church who refuse to give up their sin. But maybe, maybe you're not convinced. Well, if so, Paul calls you to listen up. To listen up. Here we turn to the reasons God gives us to not sit idly by while sin ravages his church. Here's why you need to do what is uncomfortable, what will likely be painful and cause others to attack you even. Listen up as Paul presents several gospel reasons to do so. First, we wake up to the existence of sin in the church. Then we stand up to that sin, even to the point of expelling someone from our number. Well, why do we do so? Listen up, because it's for the good of the one in sin. It's for the good of that unrepentant sinner. Look at verse 5 there again. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So for anyone that would suggest that expelling a sinning member is unloving, fails to see the end game. That's actually a, a great act of love so that they wouldn't be under the wrong impression that everything's okay when Jesus comes and I'm found to be in unrepentant sin. 
That brother is to be handed over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That is, that the destruction of that sinful way of living for the flesh. So that they will be cast out of the church and, and the notion that they're okay in Jesus will be dispelled. That the church would take such severe judgment, such serious steps against them, is to cause them to think about, the, about their souls, to think about the outcome of their way of living when Jesus comes back in judgment. It's an act of love. That's why you show sinning, sinning uh, brothers the door. So that they'll consider their way of life and, and to really examine themselves to see if they're in the faith. It's for their own good. You tell them people who continue to live the way you're living will not get to heaven. If you, if you want to live like those who hate Jesus, go be with them. But we're not going to join in your deception. That's what you're telling them. And that's hard to do, I know. But it is the greatest act of love for them to care about their soul. Because I referenced the Ephesian text. There, there's lots, Galatians 5, has tech, uh, there's a text like that. There's lots of places in the New Testament that say, this is what the fruits of the flesh look like. And if you live like that, you will not see heaven. I don't care if you pray to prayer. I don't care if you're a baptized member of this church for 50 years. If you live in unrepentant sin, you will not inherit the kingdom. Jesus doesn't recognize people like that. He says, get away from me, you workers of iniquity. And there's going to be a lot of people that are shocked on that day when Jesus returns. Let's not be party to letting people in our church you know, be deceived in that way. You follow me? So that the first gospel reason is, is we care for that sinning brother more than they care for themselves. Just like, just like, just like expelling a, a drug addict from our, from our houses because of the things they keep stealing to cash in to buy drugs, it's an act of love. Maybe they'll come to their senses when they see such such action. It tells them to consider the warning of James 2.17. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. One who claims to have faith and yet does not produce the fruit of ongoing repentance from sin. Don't misunderstand me. We're all sinners. We all commit great sins. But the, the mark of a Christian is that they repent of those sins. They strive towards holiness. They, they, they're, they're continually fighting against their sin. The person that gives into it and loves it, that's who we're talking about. That's who we're talking about. And that's the person that shows their faith to be a dead kind of faith, potentially. Christ showed his love towards sinners by addressing their sins head on. He constantly called out their sins. You must know this, right? Readers of the Bible. Jesus was constantly head on calling people out in their sins. I mean, when he was asked about a great tragedy, a local tragedy, when a, when a tower collapsed on a bunch of people, Jesus replied, unless you repent, you'll also likewise perish. That's Luke 13.3. He was always bringing out people's sins. He was always taking it on head-on because he loved them and wanted them to repent of those sins. When Jesus was speaking to Jews, he rejected him. In John 8, he says, why, you, why do you not understand what I say? 
It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. That's some hard words right there. Jesus wanted people to know that they were trapped in sin and needed to turn from it. Jesus loved people enough to call them to repentance, call them to faith in his death and resurrection. We cannot claim to love those in the church who are steeped in sin and not follow his example. We call out their sins so that they might turn from it, that their desire for it might be destroyed, they might, that they might be saved. Now listen up. Showing the door to those who love their sin is in hope that they will be spared from God's judgment when Christ returns. We stand up to sin because Jesus stood up to our sin. Standing up to sin is for the good of those who won't repent, friends. You have to think about this. You have to adjust your thinking to biblical thinking on this point. But standing up to sin is also for the good of the church. It's, it's, it's for the good of the one that's caught in sin, but it's also for the good of the church. Now, I've already mentioned this briefly, but verse 6 warns against the pervasive nature of sin. That is the, the rapid, destructive, spreading power of sin. Look at verse 6 there. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? When you put a little bit of yeast in, into dough, it spreads throughout the whole lump so that the entire loaf of bread that will be made from that will, will rise. It won't just be like this little corner that rises. Now, I know nothing about baking. I'm hoping that's true. I've read books that tell me that that's true. The point is this. If we don't address sin in the church, unrepentant sin over here in this corner, it will affect all of us and not in a good way. Some will start to see that sin as acceptable. Some will perhaps be weaker Christians that look to somebody and go, oh, I respect that guy and he's involved in that sin. That must be okay and join them. And worse. Sin that goes unaddressed spreads. And that's why he says that in verse 6. A little bit of leaven runs through the entire lump. So too, sin, when left alone, can cause great damage throughout the church. Do you love the church, friends? Do you love the church? Do you want to protect the people in the church from sin? Then you have to stand up against it. You have to stand up against it. Sin turns people's hearts away from the love of Christ and causes them not to trust faithful brothers and sisters who call them to return to the holy call of those who follow the Savior. Sin must be stood up against to protect the church from its evil, contaminating influence. Listen up. Confronting sin, standing up against it, expelling unrepentant sinners from the church is for their own good. It's for the good of the church. And it's a demonstration of the ongoing power of Christ's work. This is perhaps the most powerful reason, I think, in the text. Look at it, like soak up all these words in verses 7 and 8 here. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Listen to the reason. Let me start off. Cleanse out the old leaven, that is the people who are living like before they came to Christ, before they confessed Christ. Clean them out, those who are in unrepentant sin, so that you'll be a new lump. 
But look at the reason that the, the, the look at the gospel logic here. Why should you do this? As you really are unleavened. Clean out the leaven because you're unleavened. Clean out the sin because you are pure. Right? Now, I'm going to talk about it for, for a minute, but pull in verse 8 to it so you can see it right next to it. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, the festival of unleavened bread and the festival of, of Passover. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of truth. I've missed a sentence. I'm going to read it all over again. Verse 7 and 8. You've got to see this together. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. That's the first. Then it says, I missed the most important part. Listen to it. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul calls the church to be who we are. Take steps to purify the church because in Christ you are pure. You don't have to work your way into, into God's kindness, into God's acceptance of you. You're already accepted. You're already pure by your faith in Jesus Christ. So act like it. Isn't that freeing? Do you, do you sense the freedom of that? You don't have to work to be pure to prove something to anybody. God has already seen in His grace through Christ to you by faith, has already pronounced you pure. Act like it. Don't let anybody take that away from you. Don't let anybody sit there in unrepentant sin and, and cause that celebration to, to be drugged through the mud. To allow someone to live in our church like, like the like Christ being sacrificed doesn't matter, is to deny what he's done. But standing up against sin is living in the power of it. It's living in the power of what God has already done in his grace. The ongoing power of Christ saving power from sin. Listen now. Christ the, the Passover lamb has already been sacrificed in order to purify Christ's church, this church. He's already produced, given to us the power of his grace to live purely. Live out of that. Live in the freedom of that. It's, it's such a powerful point. It's already been done for you. It's already been done for you to live pure lives. Because you're already pure in God's eyes. So just live in light of that freedom. Live in light of that power of his grace. The brother who loves to sin has to go. And the saints are duty-bound to show him the door. Not unlike a drug addict, right? Living in your house, causing all kinds of damage, putting everybody in danger. But for this to happen, we have to first wake up to the reality of sin in the church, friends. Wake up. Sin is in the church and it's dangerous comes about all the time, wave after wave after wave. Then we have to stand up. Stand up to sin by removing the unrepentant from the church. That doesn't mean we, we fail to pray for people in sin. That doesn't mean we, 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 
we, we don't go and confront them and lovingly try to help them. It doesn't mean that we, we use all of our resources to rescue them. But what it does mean is if in the end they will not turn from that sin, they got to go. And we have to stand up to it. We don't want to do this hard work of confronting and even expelling people from the church, though. It's hard for us. I know this. And that's, that's where we are to listen up to the gospel power God provides us to do what he commands. A brother who loves to sin has to go. May God help us to live as spiritual people, spiritual people, and show him the door. May God help us to continue Christ's work in his power as we protect his church. I trust that's persuasive to you. I trust that's a challenge to you on your responsibilities to help keep the church of Jesus pure. Take a moment of quiet reflection over those things. Ask yourself some hard questions. Ask, ask yourself if you believe these things, if you're willing to submit to God's word and do these things as they, as they transpire.